the, the kind of terms I like to use is, is one is like, uh, like substitutionary health. Like if what you are doing is substituting or, or making up for a, a bad or like a bad situation or a bad, not a bad founder, but a founder that's not ready. Right. And the other one is contributory. Right. You can help as much as you want and be involved as deeply as you want, as long as you're contributing to something that already get there. That's good. If you're if you're propping something up that wouldn't make it without you, then basically what you're doing is wasting a lot of time, right? Um, because right at the end, if it needs to get over that thing and raise from from external investors or do that next round and doesn't cut the mustard, then what what's happened is you've just kind of sheltered the venture. This is My Product Tested, the show that unpacks how successful founders have tested their way to the top and all the market validation that happened along the way. Now we've been interviewing top founders for almost two years now and we've heard all too many times founders struggling with runway due to a lack of funding. So in this season, we thought it'd be cool if we heard it from the VC side. Now in this episode, we chat to Louis Baez, founder and CEO of The Delta. We find out how VCs build relationships with founders, the most crucial personality trait for being a successful founder, and how The Delta is bridging the gap for African founders looking to entrench a foothold in Europe and abroad. So let's get into the studio. It's not like you told me just before we started recording that like make this the best episode ever, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not like we said any of that. Yeah, as always, it would be really cool to hear the beginning. Is this what you wanted to be when you grew up? When you're in grade one, is this like your kind of North Star that you always wanted the business that it is today? Or where did it all begin? Jeez, man, going back to grade one. It's going to be a long story. I'm kidding. <laughs> Childhood trauma. Probably <laughs> <laughs> oh, grade one. <laughs> I'll keep it to like a minute, a minute per grade at school. Um, yeah, man. Like, I mean, you know, really, I'm actually thinking about what I thought I wanted to be when I was in grade one. And I actually, I don't actually think I thought I wanted to be anything, to be honest, which is kind of really worrying, actually. <laughs> either, from my, either from my memory or for grade one, me, either way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess the beginning of my, my entrepreneurial career. So I've kind of been a little bit on both sides as... I mean, of your intro from an entrepreneurial perspective, from the startup side, going all the way through now to to acting more on the investing side, but also being kind of a, a, a fair, I guess, a, kind of a big driving force in a lot of the ventures that we invest in just with our model, which I can explain more about. So I've seen quite a lot of the range of it. And I must say that, like, I mean, all of it is comes with its own issues. But I guess maybe let me go back to the start, like you asked. So out of uni i was in startups pretty much i mean i looking back now i wouldn't actually call them startups because they were so bad i mean it's a long screen of them almost all of them were unsuccessful <laughs> and like really bad like badly unsuccessful um but um yeah so that's kind of for the few years after uni um in there kind of some of the first ventures i started to actually get right um and I mean, we're talking about mildly right now, like uh, we're around kind of maybe 2016, a venture called Carry, which is like a school payments app. Um, and like, I remember quite a lot of like, you know, just getting down into kind of the detail. I'm just going to go over it now. I don't know what, what kind of version of this you want. But um, I kind of at that point, yeah, man, I mean, like, geez, I don't know which, which direction you want me to go. Yeah, I've been just Just like, go. Just go. <laughs> um like uh, yeah so i mean i, I think I, I i even though these days i'm I'm on the investor side a lot more i think i still actually see myself as still from the founder side of the business that is actually investing in things and i wonder if other vcs actually think that i guess if you're just in the investment side of normal vc or in, in any investment professional kind of position whether you see it that way but i kind of still see myself as building the business that does the things it just happens to have a different business model uh where it's got kind of helping the ventures and it's got investing in the ventures right which i think between those two is kind of an interesting way of how you put kind of the, the two different sides right um to maybe answer your question about whether i saw myself doing this when i was younger like i think i definitely always knew i was going to start something um and and I actually learned later on that I actually it's because like a lot of founders I actually enjoy the process of starting it. It's like this feeling where 
like everything is super uncertain and you're like knitting the pieces together. And as soon as the pieces come together, I get like this major kick. And then after that, it kind of subsides. <laughs> um, and I mean, like to, to, I mean, usually that tells like a lot of founders actually either like that beginning part or kind of like to build something out. And I've realized that, you know, you can actually have both as long as you're moving fast enough. And I think that's why Delta does so many things is because like for me, putting the initial pieces together is actually the fun part. So you can still get that feeling in a scaling business as long as you're moving quick enough. Do you, um, do you, do you think that you kind of get addicted to that momentum of starting something new? I think for a lot of founders, the idea of going and being an angel investor is exciting. And then they figure out that it's actually pretty boring because they're not in the trenches. And after six months, they're like, okay, how many pitch decks can I really go through? Like, I need to get my hands dirty again. Is that kind of why there's this unique aspect to the Delta where you you almost like, it really feels like you are at ground zero with founders and you, you're incubating, you're starting, you're not just putting in capital and sitting back and reading books like Warren Buffett? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's uh, for sure, right? And I think there's two sides to maybe that question. There is there is a deep thrill of being involved in the venture when it really has to execute. I mean, you guys would know from kind of, you know, just your own experience, it can also be horrendously frightening to know that you're the only thing between something actually being there and something not being there. That is, that is, is super gratifying. And I think that's why a lot of angel investors will decide how many ventures they want to be invested in and how deeply they'll be involved. But what I will tell you as well is it's deeply, deeply satisfying that when there is a venture with a strong CEO that is gonna get it over the line regardless, that you can actually go home <laughs> after. It's kind of like that saying that like kids are great if you can give them back to their parents, right? Um, so you can go there and help, right? When it really is needed. But at the end of the day, like that's the thing about angel investing is that you're not that, you are not the person in a venture if it's working properly, which I think is why people who have been through it once or twice before and become kind of an angel operator find so much excitement in it because you can be there. For, I want to say the fun parts. You can be there when you want to, but you can still go home where, and like, that's where I'd kind of, I guess that's super frightening part where it's like, it's the best way I can describe being the only person, like if you really have to get the raise over the line and you're running out of money, it's like at uni, you get that feeling where you realize that you're going to have to work through the night and it gives you that big dread. It's just like that, but like a thousand times worse. Um, so yeah, I guess I, I'm starting to see these like, both the happy sides of being the person and then being the person that helps the person. And I, I enjoy that kind of that mix, right? And and what do you what qualities do you see in a founder that like do you see patterns in the founders that you invest in where it's kind of like what you said is so interesting, like being able to live with that deep uncertainty every day almost becomes, you know, like you have to have incredibly high energy and you have to be able to live with that un uncertainty. Um, is there like a specific, you know, kind of trait that you look for on a founder or is it, is it kind of a feeling that you get when you sit down and you, you, you kind of go deep on the idea with them? Um, to be honest, uh, there is, there is definitely a trait that I look for when, when investing in a founder or working, or working with any founders. Um, and it, it really is around resilience, right? Um, like one of the things that like really defines whether a venture will make it in my opinion is not necessarily like how well you know the market. You can learn the market, it'll take longer, right? Like that's great. Um, how, what your, what your skills are on like hiring, like all of those things are things that you can either hire for, you can learn. But like one of the things that really makes or breaks a venture is like when it is in that, in the deepest, darkest spot, right? Um, and you, you like everyone who has done or, or built a venture to any level of like fundraising rounds or you know profitability will recount many different stories of like when it is that man I can tell you like a few that like that are going on right now that 
when you speak, <laughs> you kind of you kind of get on the phone with the founder at like 11 p.m. and you're actually like laughing with them, but actually you're like they're crying. <laughs> but like, the laugh comes from deep pain and insecurity. <laughs> it's, ground zero. It's, it's a bellowing laugh. It's a different kind of laugh. <laughs> And there's, and there's times where like very regularly people have like a month or less runway in, in the bank and like, you gotta, you gotta keep your head on straight and get it and get it done. Right. And like, these are not small companies either. Right. Um, and that I think is something I look for that as soon as I can see that, that like it will happen, like that person will get it there. Um, whatever way it takes, like that's really where, especially from an investor perspective, you can really go like, okay, like I, I, I can actually, I like, I trust this business will be okay. It's hard to see that in a first, uh, like first time founder or someone who hasn't started something before, because like you, you, you see it in a lot of different like traits of, of what they've done in the past. In my opinion, it's the only way you can get a proxy of it. Um, but it, that's kind of one of the main things I look for. The rest of it is important, but, I think that for me is the most important. Yeah, it's that it's that anti-fragile mindset. But I think the craziest thing about being a founder is that, you know, you could know the market, you could have, you know, take on all that risk to get product market fit. You can you can raise that pre-seed, get to Series A, but you, like you're constantly having to learn because maybe you've you've never scaled to to twenty thousand users or like okay, you've you've scaled it locally in South Africa, but what does it look like scaling across? 10 countries and hiring a distributed team like you constantly are like at the very threshold of like what you the skills you have and like this insecurity of knowing that like there's still so much that you don't know <laughs> uh if you're doing it right you're consistently well past your threshold <laughs> <laughs> yeah. outside of the realm of questionable competence you're like <laughs> mucking about with like trying to yeah hire someone in marketing when you don't know anything about it like <laughs> and if you get it wrong only twice it's good right <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's um that like resilience comes from a lot of like emotional connection to the business where you you know you're like fighting every day because you believe in like the purpose that you're solving or the product or the team that you have because you have this like undeniable confidence in its success and like when you're a founder that's like the key like fire inside you that's pushing you to grow this fucking thing as far as you can and to not let that flame go out. And I think like, how does that change as you start like shifting your mindset into a VC position where you are once a founder where, you know, there's this emotional attachment, there's this undeniable like confidence in that. And then you have you working with these other people that are emotionally attached. Like does that, are there like soft spots that appear like when you're working with these different ventures or like how, how is that managed? Yeah, man. Um, I mean, I was going to say one thing just about, about like, uh, about the word founder, like I, uh, and then I'll go into kind of your question. Like I, I used to, I mean, and I, I still do believe this to some extent, like, like what is a founder? Like, and there's a lot of terminology about like when you're a founder, when you're not a founder and companies have like sometimes huge debates about it or not. Or, and like, I used to actually think that, well, and I still kind of do a little bit is that a founder is, is not really any, like, you're not like smart or anything. You just have a, a really, a, a really big incapability of forecasting risk <laughs> because if you would, then you would just not be doing this because the odds are so, so low. Just really good at lying to yourself. Yeah, like if you're smart, you go to bank. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, like otherwise, well, I mean that's kind of said in jest, but it, it it is kind of a precursor to kind of that thing of like looking at insurmountable odds and just not even bl not blinking it. You know, like like going through that resilient period. You need to believe in the idea even when no one else is doing it. Um, to answer your question about how it relates, like into the VC space, I think. Like businesses, a lot of the time, and VC or investments is is is, is similar. Is is a, a lot of the times about relationships, right? Um, like you know, once you've made an investment in something, like there's a lot of like bigger PE companies that will make investments late stage that hardly ever meet the people, and it's really a paper transaction, right? And like, but in in early stage, you are investing as much in that person or the team 
uh, or, or you know in, in that and that that forges a, an incredible relationship that is very difficult and and i mean you need it right because at the end of the day like you're both you're both trying to push as hard as you can in the same direction often obviously i mean the actual roles of of who is actually responsible to get what results done is different and that you know some sometimes like it, you know investors can't really help as much as they kind of would want to and also you know sometimes it's actually kind of not useful to help or not 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 useful but in certain cases it's not good to help too much um uh i guess operationally sometimes right but you know it, it because of that relationship it's so difficult it's so difficult to see a company at that point struggling at that level or, or in the deepest darkest moment and not almost even if you can't do anything about it like you just you just hold all of that emotion <laughs> so you're like have a call at 11 p.m with this founder who's like trying to ask feedback about the deck and they've gotten a lot of no's and like you don't know enough you don't know as much about the market you weren't there in the vc pitches like you you don't you you don't know the feedback as well as they do and like you're just trying to soundboard <laughs> and like and like but it's so hard not to take that on as well right and it's and it's tough man sometimes you just end a call with like a huge sigh afterwards and like you just go like man um stuff 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 man um yeah and but i would um, say that yeah sorry you go yeah no no go for it no i was just gonna say like it it, it is it is it, i find it i find it I find it very enjoyable as well. So I think for me, I was always I was always more drawn to the puzzle of the startup. Like, and, and Delta is a great example of that. It's a it's like a puzzle, effectively to solve how you build and then support later stage or from early stage all the way through to late stage and invest in ventures, right? So like I like the part I love about supporting the ventures is obviously working with those teams to solve puzzles, right? So as an investor, you get to see more puzzles and you also see a very different lens to the, the game, right? There's a lot of networking you do. There's a lot of working with other investors to build different syndicates and things like that. So it's a completely different side of the game that like as a founder, a first or second time founder, you don't often see as much of, especially if the ventures, I mean, obviously, you know, sometimes you do because you, you make it a great success, but yeah, I mean, I would say I'm still probably learning as as I go, but like, it's really, it's fascinating, to be honest. Do you ever feel like the startup space has a lot of bad advice? Like it's over glamorized. There's a lot of content out there. There's a lot of terminology. Do you feel like a lot of what the Delta's job is for a founder is to almost cut the bullshit and the noise? Um, you know, I feel like, 15, 20 years ago, pre-YC startup library videos, it was like trying to understand the secrets of a founder or a startup. And now it's almost like what makes you a good founder is learning what you can ignore. Um, yeah. so, man, it's a, I mean, it's, a, it's a good point, right? I think the, the one thing that I think is, is important to mention, which I think is around helping startups or helping founders right like the, there's a there's a, a very big difference between advisory and mentorship so like uncertain like if you take uncertain uncertainty which is like uncertainty around market uncertainty around um customer fit uncertainty around thing and you add conflicting advice you just get chaos Right. And that's why a lot of startup advice in the beginning is like, you should do this for this customer. Like it's very, very, very difficult to, to get that to work in startups because everything's uncertain. And if you just have two different opinions, you go and taste like pretty much everything. So alignment in the beginning is super strong. And what you need is mentorship around uh, or how to go about it. And I think that's something that Delta really focuses on quite a lot, particularly from the earlier stage venture side. Because there, what you're doing is interpreting frameworks or, or bringing frameworks of thinking to understand the problems and then be able to assist if it's clear, right? Um, and that's, I think, one of the things that I think is the most important about super early stage startups, 
Um, the, the content, as you mentioned, like there's so much content out there on the frameworks and what you should be applying and what you should be looking at. But like, it's basically just like, like self-help books, like a lot of them, right? Uh, and a lot of it's the timing, like, yeah, there can be a first principles around finding product market fit. But like, I see so many first time founders are thinking, how can they make their startup look like more exit worthy or like have this in line? I'm like, okay, but also just get a thousand customers and like get to 20K MRR before you should even give a shit about that, right? Like... <laughs> There's so many because sometimes people are like, sometimes people are like, yeah, you have to have your exit plan sorted. And then other people are like, dude, you don't actually even need to know your end business model. And then other people are like, you know, um, like just get the first customer. And then other people, you know, so everyone, that kind of conflicting views, you're right. They all come from the scenario that you're in. So like one of the things around validation is, is like, and that's why like at Delta, we use kind of a lot of, I guess, as opposed to the bare metal logic when it comes to validating business models or understanding business models, because it is at the end of the day, like a discussion of what is and isn't present. So as an example, like there's this famous story about uh, the iPod with, uh, uh, with Steve Jobs, right? And like everyone was used it, like, why did he not even like validate the iPod before kind of a thing? He didn't make a MVP iPod, right? Like, um, and then, like, I mean, the, the the easy quip of it is basically that, I mean, what are you trying to test? What are you what are you trying to prove with an iPod, right? That, you know, one was that people would listen to music on the go, which was already a Walkman. And the other one is people would download songs because it's more efficient, right? Then he's like, those are the two main things you're testing with an iPod, right? Um, and it's super easy when you say it like that. And then people take that and then they go like, you know, what are you trying to do? It's like, I'm trying to build a employee wellness thing for whatever and if you really do spend the time like looking at the frameworks you can provide value if you take the junk food quips like get 10 customers or build an mvp or use local startup like, <laughs> like you can you can just like oh man and that's what i mean about the mentorship around what should you focus on right now right which is really really tricky if you then go add other things like your fundraising strategy onto that, it becomes way more interesting as well, because, you know, a lot of the time, like, do you need an MVP to raise, right? Like the only reason, like a lot of people are doing like do MVP sometimes if it's, I guess, like semi-validated already, right? Like, you know, they do an MVP. Some people are coming to us saying like, I want you to build this to prove that we can build it. And you're like, you're not, like, it's not, you're not risking anything. You're just proving that you can build it. So if an investor doesn't believe you can build it, then okay, fine, then build it. But like, to be honest, if you're trying to get us to build it for you to prove that it's buildable to the investor, like oh, this is like a waste of money, right? So <laughs> it's stuff like that, that, that is, uh, you have to just think through, right? It's like, you can make so many mistakes. Yeah, that like relationship that they have with, or you guys will have with the founders is like so interesting to try balance that fine line between like intervention and guidance where you can just like be there, be the soundboard, but like you also at some stage need to like nudge them in the right direction, not shove them in the right direction <laughs> where it's like you, you just need to be there, but also at the same time you have your frameworks that you know work. You like, is there like, how do you find that? Is it, is it like case by case where you just like, you know, you hire the right people in the Delta team that can manage these relationships that understand the psychology that goes into like building a team, building a business and like what they're going through at what stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I think there's something I like to, I like to use as a guide post right? because the thing about, the thing about helping ventures is like, if you're helping, especially at early stage, if you're helping, there's this thing of like helping too much, a weaker venture right um which is sometimes true um and helping too little sometimes is ventures are not like living to their full potential so it's like one of those oxymorons but the the kind of terms i like to use is, is one is like uh like substitutionary help like if what you are doing is substituting or, or making up for a, a bad or like a bad situation or a bad not a bad founder but a founder that's not ready Right. And the other one is contributory, right? Um, just hold on. I'm I'm on a podcast. Sorry. Uh, somebody's trying to talk to me. <laughs> um, 
um, yeah, so the one is contributory and the other one is substitutionary, right? So you can help as much as you want and be involved as deeply as you want, as long as you're contributing to something that already get there. That's good. If you're, if you're propping something up that wouldn't make it without you, then basically what you're doing is wasting a lot of time, right? Um, because right at the end, if it needs to get over that thing and raise from, from external investors or do that next round and doesn't cut the mustard, then what, what's happened is you've just kind of sheltered the venture. And that's really, really, really hard to tell when you're doing which one. So the way that you know we we've set up at Delta is we've got kind of obviously the, in, the investment side, which focuses on super early stage, so like founding round um, to like pre-seed and follow on, and then we've got the services acceleration side where we've got kind of 270 people that assist ventures in various things from advisory all the way down to executing certain things. Um, and in some cases, you're going to be half the tech team from Delta. And sometimes you're going to be giving them the CTO and they'll keep the CTO. And sometimes you're going to be, you know, someone's just going to be giving market advice or, or, or you're going to be giving them network. Um, and, and it's really important to know and to get the right people in that team, right? And that's one of the hardest things for us because, you know, there's a lot of people that you know, like you have to be super talent dense, like everyone has to be amazing at what they do. Otherwise, ventures don't want to work with them, right? So it, it becomes about getting the right people at the right place and knowing where the line is, right? Like, where are you contributing as opposed to substituting? Um, and that's actually, I'll go to one more step. And that's actually the, the big difference between venture builders, venture studios, and just agencies, right? Agencies have a model of basically returning end revenue to shareholders out of services right which is is automatically you can see the conflict there where you're more incentivized to keep that business dependent uh in general um to make make revenue whereas like if you truly move on to the business model of, of benefiting out of the end return of the investments you're making and then you are helping it changes the game completely right and that is a very difficult thing to get right as as i've experienced as I've learned, um, but that that helps you see the line between where you are substituting for a venture and when when you are contributing. Yeah, because that I guess that kind of answers my next question that I was going to ask about you know like the um, the kind of partnership that you build with these companies like obviously like doing a brief sort of LinkedIn stalk on like some of the companies that you guys have invested in is like. There are some partners in like the actual Delta ecosystem that work either part time or full time or are integrated into the like founders ecosystem. Um, like that kind of just naturally unfolds, I guess, over the time of that contribution or substitution, as you say. Yeah. So sometimes people are people are we know that they're going to start a venture and they're just on the way there, and then they do a stint at Delta in either the venture team or venture architecture or in product, you know, there's been various versions, or they help out a little bit here or there part-time while the early stages to just keep cash up, like, you know, it helps with, with founders, they can raise later by doing that. Um, or, you know, they come in or, or they're already at Delta and they didn't really have a goal to do that and they want to spin out and we pick to back them, right? And that's happened. I think we've got three, three, four in progress right now like that. Um, and and I think the the re, yeah I mean that's you've just got to look you've just got to you you've got to realize at the end of the day that like the ecosystem is full of people who are learning things at all times, and will will in weird ways be ready to start ventures at times that you can't control, and and you've really got to live up to I guess what what is our mission is is effectively to build these impactful ventures. So we're, we'll always try and prioritize the opportunity to build a good venture, even if someone's internal, external, which is what it, it's, it's tough for agencies to do that as well, um, I guess. This, uh, this might be a bit of like a personal question, but what, what actually excites you? Is it like building the biggest venture studio in the world? Is it, is it, is it crypto? Is it decentralized <laughs> finance? What, what like really gets, gets you going these days? One thing I can tell you that, that like I definitely doesn't get me going is crypto. <laughs> but, uh, I was there, I was there once, uh, and I kind of like, yeah, it's uh, maybe I was just scarred, right? Maybe I'm taking like five years off, and then maybe I'll go back. <laughs> um, 
I think like for me, um, like what actually gets me up in the morning and keeps me up fixing whatever I'm doing, which, you know, depending on your role at a company ranges from just dealing with fire to dealing with big fire. <laughs> um, <laughs> in that range exclusively, uh, which sometimes is basically all, all my job is. But um, I I must say there's like, I enjoy, I enjoy the puzzle of it. You know, like I, I find that I am most content. And like this, I'll, yeah, I mean, this has always been a conundrum for me because a lot of people are always like, like, you know, like you've got to be aiming for an end outcome, which I disagree with, right? And I'll maybe speak just about the vision and mission of Delta and how that relates to what makes me happy, right? Because invariably as a founder, like it's very difficult to separate those two in the beginning, right? Like you are almost doing it because of the fact that it makes you happy in some other weird way. Either it's because you're solving a problem or because getting up every day you get a kick out of doing that and the result is a company, right? Um, so for me, I love solving, I, 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 like I love solving puzzles. It's like, um, it sounds so like innocuous, but it's kind of like playing Age of Empires game. Um, but like you can play it as an adult and like you can spend the money and that's basically the only difference. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> that's, what, that's what makes me yeah. deeply happy, which is, like I, I I I kind of find that like a puzzle, a business that builds businesses, is like it is made a puzzle. <laughs> yeah, I find I find I find waking up for I can find myself waking up for twenty years and solving this puzzle, and that's that's me personally. Like and interpreting that then again, like at one point in a startup's lifespan, like the, the vision for the business and the mission of the business deviates from your personal like it has to at one point because at the end of the day like you know a lot of the good kind of like i guess brands that we've seen develop over the last you know 20 30 40 years that have become household names like their their mission or, or and the vision of succeeding at that are, are things that a lot of people can get behind right and and while i think that like a lot of people in today's world just because of how like uh I guess how we're conditioned, like solving problems and enjoying solving problems is actually something that a lot of people that are in the product development space or in just in the startup space are, resonate with. Um, so like kind of how that relates to the mission at Delta at the moment is like uh, well, our core mission is effectively to build as many unfair capabilities that we can deliver to our ventures. Um, so in, in essence, we're assisting them to solve kind of a lot of a lot of these issues better and better. But what is the purpose of the company is different. Like I've asked myself this many, many, many times. And I think the thing I keep coming back to, and it also touches on why we're called Delta, is basically to accelerate the rate of solving a lot of the world's biggest problems. Because if we if we can do that, we can assist effectively. Well, I guess it sounds a bit innocuous, but we can assist humanity basically to overcome a lot of these challenges by just accelerating the rate. So if you actually look at like, obviously Delta means change, right? Which effectively, if you look at anything we do when we get involved with the venture, we're consistently just like helping it do what it's doing faster, better, more successfully, right? Um, yeah. So I guess that's that, that gets me out of bed for every morning, I guess. <laughs> and you seem like a, like very deep thinker, problem solver. Like, what do you do to like blow off steam? Like, what do you do to quiet the mind? Is it like surfing? Is it exercising? I think it's something that you kind of like struggle with being a founder is like, how do you get that kind of release? Cause it's like this built up like intensity. Man, uh, yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I, I um, to be, to be like, I'm gonna sound like such a dork right now. Um, actually what I do to blow off steam is I cruise LinkedIn <laughs> and, and, I, and I basically message people that I would not necessarily like, I, that I would consider work because I enjoy it, but I just like cruise LinkedIn and learn about companies. That is actually what I, what I do to as a hobby. What you're going to say, play age of empires. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you, that, that problem, unfortunately would, would be too like, I don't know. There's a part. Yeah. I don't know. I would say that if I work it out, it's kind of, it's about a, I'm happiest when I'm progressing. And a lot of people have that, like 
progress like sometimes ticks this buck internally that I did well today. I fix, I did my to-do list. It's a very like innate, like, so I mean, humans have like basically four chemicals that govern like how our emotion, when we're happy, right? And the one is a dopamine hit. So like I get very little dopamine out of playing uh, Age of Empires because there's only so much finite use for the outcome. I don't know. Like, I think to your point, maybe I overthink things a lot, but <laughs> no, I think, I think it's like, it, it brings you to like, a, I think important thing that you learn as you get older is like life is about the directional arrow of progress and the momentum. And it's a cliche, like the, it's about the process, not the outcome, but you really learn that because if you feel that momentum and that progression and you feel like you're growing, like the outcome is always going to change in your mind as you grow. So like, the gratification or the dopamine hit of a fundraise or extra revenue or whatever that goalpost is it's it's immaterial because it's like it's so finite it lasts seconds or minutes or days right and like but if you feel that progression that's also what kind of keeps you driving forward as well yeah and i mean there's a lot of there's a lot of like yeah a lot of like i guess literature about how trying to be mindful and decouple a lot of these like these things that that we believe make us happy and like there's a lot of sadness that that is in the world about people wanting to achieve things and not not getting there right and like if like i always find that if you if you spend a lot of time thinking it through and like being able to detach like or or or, or not be kind of upset for not achieving it it becomes i don't know the alternative is just a very chilled out existence which i think could be you know i guess very very like i guess rewarding in certain ways but like one thing that 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 founders or, or anyone in startups really needs i mean when you take a look at yourself and realize like when everyone's having these discussions about really bad times not necessarily when, when you're like an entrepreneur in like a micro business or like building an sme and supporting that a lot of the times once people are building ventures like you put yourself through this right like you put yourself through various late hours and stress around raises and things like that like there's many ways you could not be doing this in some cases not in all cases right? Why? yeah but like you know you kind of want to at one point do it right and that is that is i guess what makes the highs feel so high uh like is the lows right i don't know i've, I've it's a yeah i mean i don't get that much time to think about it but that's kind of why why i you know, feel like it's worthwhile. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's that big thing about like you, uh, I don't know. It's the old saying that like we've learned all too well ourselves is like you get burnt out for not feeling like you have a, like doing a purpose and you're working way too hard on something that doesn't have like an end outcome that you're working towards that you're proud of or, and like, I think that's the big thing is like, you can work as many hours as you want, as long as like, that like passion for the outcome and purpose of what you're doing is, you know, aligned. Um, I want to just jump in. We have a, a game that we always play with the, the VCs. And I think um, if you had to pull yourself out of Delta and have an unbiased decision on this, um, we have a invest, marry, kill. Um, we'll give you three, three companies and invest would obviously be uh, getting the biggest return for your investment, um, marry being you're going to partner and be involved in this company for the long term forever, um, and kill you're going to you're going to switch off tomorrow, um, and we always try to keep it as local as possible. So we've got some some <laughs> fintech uh, companies for you. Uh, we got Yoko, Yoko, Snapscan, and Ozo. Oh, yeah, it's a tough one. Um, so in, invest, uh, marry and kill. Uh, okay. So I, I think I would, I would definitely invest in, in Yoko. Um, I can give, I guess I could give reasons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I think, I think Yoko are going to be able to pivot nicely uh well not necessarily out of only like direct payments one i think just because of the fact that um they have quite a lot of the main cash flow a lot of micro to mid enterprises 
And I think their tech is just better. I think there's a big market for growth um, throughout Africa in that space, ending in kind of a business bank, I would imagine. I don't know. I don't know the actual strategy, but I think they're well positioned for that. And Snapscan, obviously, as well. But, um, you know, I think that they, they're, you know, as per a lot of bank kind of affiliated things, like, is that same drive there? I don't know. Um, uh, so I would probably, I would probably partner with Snapscan or marry Snapscan because I would imagine just being, you know, like I think there's a lot of brand value there and there's probably a lot of like adjacencies, I guess, um, that I would look at, which, you know, is, I like that, like thinking of opportunity, like if they're, they're doing that and they're not really broadening too wide, like you could go from, you know, there into more of a BB like side, whatever. So I would partner with them, um, marry them, I guess. Weird. I mean, they, their office is like just downstairs from us. So like, it is a bit weird. Like if anyone watches this, I see, I see them. Well, I should have gone the other way around. <laughs> like, uh, can I take this back? Uh, so yeah. And then I, I guess just the kill on Oza, I guess. Um, I, I have a feeling like that there's a few big movements in the in the direct real-time payment space coming, which yeah. uh, which are, I mean are you know are not they're not uh, how would I say going to consolidate the space if if like your big stripes come into to the area. Yeah, there's like the big big movements, and I I I guess at the end of the day, like I mean there's like there, I mean even like lower level direct real-time payments through kind of that is going to be even kind of disrupting a lot of the rest of the direct payment players, even like Stitch and things like that, right? So I I would probably, I'm not that bullish on, on that model, to be honest, um, but I guess that's me. And I, I don't actually know exactly what they're working on at the moment, to be honest. And, and like, I guess if any of these three businesses play their cards right, they could pivot out into uh, along the market properly. The only one I don't, yeah, I think would be able to do that that well is probably a, uh, probably a snap scan. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess they're kind of a, a feature on top of maybe like a bank layer versus becoming more of like a verticalized business bank, which is probably more Yoko, Yoko's long-term mission maybe. Yeah, the thing about it is the, like, I mean, we have a venture called Luca, which is um, uh, effectively snap scan, but for the DAC region, so Germany, mainly Germany at the moment, right? Um, and, and I mean, their strategy is, I don't know, but I think their strategy in the timeline that they have done this has done, will, it will do, it's just so much more accelerated than what Snapscan have done in the time that they've done it. Like, and it doesn't take that long. And I would say that like, they're the, the leader in the German market that has 90 million people, all of which are, you know, a higher a higher net worth in general than most South Africans and they've got a like a brand kind of I guess a brand awareness of like 94% of the country because they actually built out during COVID uh doing the kind of like like the QR scanning for check-in right so they've actually and they got 450,000 um actual locations that have accounts on this thing right like and gastronomy hotels things like that so I would say that like that's why I think that like there, I wouldn't invest in the local version because I can already see the market's probably not massive. And like, you, you know, you're going to have to stay on the consumer side. And if you can stay on the consumer side in South Africa only, it's really tough because the markets are micro, right? Like you've got your payments, maybe you launch a wallet. All of these people already have a bank card. So like, what's, you know, what's the, what's the point? So I guess maybe the second two, I don't know. I guess if any of these people listen to this, they're probably going to be like, man, this guy knows nothing about our business. So, <laughs> no, but it's just a quick, quick hot take. I mean, obviously, we don't know the overall strategy. I was worried. Like, you guys are like, let's do a quick hot take of these three things. I'm doing like a VC and <laughs> we can see the headline VC slams Ozo. <laughs> VC <laughs> top, top, top VC in South Africa slams no, Ozo. He predicts, predicts Ozo's demise. <laughs> Is oh, it God. true? <laughs> Did you say this? It's like next thing I'm going to have, like, yeah, like a legal letter or something. Oh, okay. No, that was, that was epic. And I think that kind of 
just one last thing I want to touch on, which which we're kind of speaking about now is local versus international. Like I'm very bullish on South African entrepreneurs. I think naturally, whether it's environment related, have that anti-fragile kind of mindset, which which positions them well to to start and found companies. But I think we suffer from a, a localized mindset and way of thinking where we try so like solve hyper local problems and we almost have like this lack of confidence that we can compete in an inter- on an international scale in terms of like building startups. Do you have like any advice for, I mean, I, I guess African founders like ourselves and how we can maybe like think bigger and, and back ourselves more? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you've, yeah. I mean, I think you've hit on probably the biggest reason in my opinion, why, um, but one of the biggest limiters, right? And it's and it's worldview and perspective, right? Um, it's so it's so it's so difficult. I mean, to explain, uh, I was actually doing it uh, like a thing at the presentation last week, where I kind of, you know, positioned like early stage funding is actually is actually a symptom of opportunity. It's not something that happens. Like opportunity exists, and then people find ways to invest in that opportunity. And if people say that there isn't enough early stage funding in a place like South Africa, like taking a risk on founders, you have to take one step further and say, are these founders presenting opportunities that are worth the actual risk of that capital? And the truth is, it isn't because because of the hyper-localized viewpoint. If I see somebody else trying to build a parking app for Cape Town, I swear I will cry, right? Yeah. Like, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, I mean, if you guys have tried to build a parking app at one point, shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> and we have a... on online tutoring or ed tech or, or uh, parking app. Yeah. University marketplace. <laughs> Boom. The reason why we're laughing is like in the co-working space that we have, like walk past these like a full room of coders, like, and they've got like a big like park up or park up or like whatever they call and i was like every time i just walk past and go my <laughs> so and then like now game. getting hit by all of the instagram ads and i'm like for fuck's sake guys can just like not follow me everywhere i mean they've i mean arguably they've they've done okay but i mean they've locked yeah. out the market five parking lots i'm kidding yeah <laughs> but um look i mean i'm being facetious on that one but like i yeah. i think that i think one of the the, the advice points I have, and it's something that I think Delta does deliberately, right? Which is, is we do try and bridge Europe and Africa as much as possible. Like, and the reason is because of the fact that the viewpoint, the growth that we're importing, we're importing almost the, the understanding and, and, and almost touching, like rubbing shoulders with some of these founders that are coming from a huge market, right? Like if I explain to you just Luca and the size of the opportunity and what problem they're solving, it's not a hard, I mean, it's a hard business to build without the network, like granted. So you need that foot through the door to get that network as a South African founder. Like it's really actually one of the hardest parts, right? And you can almost count on like one hand or two hands, the number of South African businesses who start directly that managed to build out into an international company properly, right? Um, you know, without doing some form of thing. I mean, Obviously, Nasdaq is probably the most well-known one, but I mean, they made uh, one investment, which is worth like ninety-five percent of the company, right? So, like, I guess that's that, that counts, I guess. Um, but there's very few, and, and my advice to any founders would be to to start building your international network early and start finding a way to work on ventures or in ventures or around ventures um, that that are based in a different country, like faster, right? Because like you just the quicker you open up your worldview about what is what is the same, what's different, what what like what problems exist there, how they're different, um, and the better you'll be able to understand like I guess how to like reference a business case that is investable. And when I mean investable, I mean like on the like on the tier one like A grade like type of like global investability, which is that you're allowed, like you are a chance for somebody to make a fund returner out of your business. And a lot of founders I see just don't have businesses that are anywhere near that and go and basically hit so many funding like like pitches, like 
you know, just not, you know, and like, and like interpret the wrong, the wrong issues. Like, like you can get almost everything wrong in a business uh, once or twice and still build a unicorn. But what you can't get wrong is actually picking a market that's too small. Um, like if you do that, like you can get everything right and still, there's like the saying, I guess what, like a good market builds a good business, right? Um, and like a bad market, you know, no matter how good the business is, but, but you can kind of feel it like when you're in a big market or like there's just so much movement in that market, it pulls, it like pulls the product out of you. It like, it you you feel it, you, you kind of know, it's, it's hard to describe, but you know when it's not there, right? Like, yeah, you, you can kind of just feel a market like pulls you out of it. And if you're sitting having to like think about certain features or like it would be cool if we maybe launch this on top of that, that market is not pulling you like it's probably not big enough right <laughs> it's like it's uh you know and like that's the thing about it is like everyone always has these quips where they say like maybe another feature will do it but like then you'll find startups that are doing that and then like you know it's it's so hard to see it's so hard to see the wood for the trees right um and you're spot on like when you feel when you've experienced it once where the market like pulls right like it's like people just want it no matter like at what stage you are like they just want it and you can and you can see the demand from many countries, or you can see the demand from a big enough market. Like you'll start to get the you'll get the drift of it. And the the only issue in South Africa is that there are there's you know our market, and like I, I spent some time in China as well a while ago, and like that's where I started realizing the the difference, right? Where China's got a market of like over a billion people, but they are like homogenous in the sense that their buying patterns are hyper similar. Like what they think is cool is hypersimilar. What they think is like making it is hypersimilar. Like what they consume is hypersimilar. And they all have a certain amount of income past a certain size, right? Past a certain like level of education, right? Whereas like what's tough about South Africa is you've got so many different, uh, I guess, fragmented markets. You've got kind of a higher income market, which is, is very European in its, in its like, in its consumption, but it's tiny, right? And then you've basically got like a much bigger kind of middle market where like spending is very constrained and like access um, to this market is slightly difficult because it's not as digitized. And also, even if you did get customers, scaling into that market is so tough because it's not that big, right? It's maybe like three, like one million people, one, two million people. And then you've got a, a like a low LSM kind of market, which is then spread between like urban, peri-urban and then rural which is a completely different game each time again. So you've got these markets that aren't actually really easily addressable. Um, you will find ventures that address them, no doubt, but you know, in Europe, you know, like if you build something for that 1 million in Germany, you're building for 40 million, which is completely different, right? Um, and that's such a hard thing to tell like first or second time founders that are based in South Africa. Not, I'm not trying to say that you can't do it here, like you can and people prove you can. But that's the biggest difference in my advice about what you should try and get early in your career is that kind of exposure very early. Love that. That's yeah. awesome. Really, thanks so much for your time. I'm sure everyone's going to appreciate this recording. Yeah, that was epic, man. Um, and for everyone listening in the My Product Tested team, it's uh, Louis Bay's uh, professional Age of Empires player, man who wakes <laughs> up in the morning and finds the corner piece of the puzzle. <laughs> and CEO, founder of the Delta. <laughs>